Welcome to episode 12 of How Public Works. This is a podcast about how government and society interact and where you as a citizen can be informed and find a place where you can engage and transform our society together. I'm your host, Ilmar Simonovskis. Today, we are meeting with Dr. Diane Sachs, who was the Environmental Commissioner of Ontario from 2015 to 2019. Diane has had an extensive career in the practice of law, including working with the Ontario government and private practice. She continues to remain very engaged in her environmental law practice, focused on climate issues. She publishes articles, maintains a blog, and is host of the podcast called Green Economy Heroes, which features green business leaders. She is also a supporter of Youth Climate Strikes Movement in Toronto. She is a recipient of numerous awards and author to several books. Dr. Sachs has contributed greatly to our profession and to the global community through her environmental advocacy and commitment to the promoting environmental stewardship. Welcome, Diane. Hello. And thank you for participating. So I have my first question for you. Uh, your priority is clear and your drive for environmental awareness and responsibility unwavering. Tell me how you came to be such a strong advocate and what your experience was in your life to bring this subject so firmly into your personal mission. Well, that's always a, a long and complicated story. I, I've always had a mad passion for trees um, and a great feeling of connection to the natural world on which our lives depend. I had the great good fortune of working for the Ontario government as a lawyer for the first 14 years of my career, and it took quite a bit of doing, but I did eventually get a spot in the Ministry of the Environment and a chance to work specifically on environmental protection, and that's pretty much all I've done ever since. Since I became Environmental Commissioner five years ago, I have narrowed my focus down to climate Frankly, I thought I was pretty well informed, uh, having been an environmental lawyer for 40 years at that point, about how serious the climate crisis was. Mm -hmm. And I was shocked when I became commissioner and went to the Paris um, Climate Summit and, and learned how deep we are into trouble and how quickly the windows are closing. I have children and grandchildren, and I, I can't even sure of dying on time myself anymore. The climate crisis is moving so quickly. Um, mm -hmm. So I am transfixed by the danger we are in and the opportunities we are wasting, and I am working on that because I want my children and grandchildren to have a, a chance at a decent life, and I see it being thrown away. I can totally appreciate that. And it is the next generation that really drives us in this kind of crisis when we're thinking about what we've done. And, you know, I want to hear more about that. You know, it must have been such an honor to be selected for the role of Environmental Commissioner of Ontario. Can you share how this came about and how you felt when you started at this post? Well, it was a bit messy, as these things often are. Um, I had been interested in the possibility five years before, but the incumbent uh, wanted to stay, and so it really wasn't open. Um, then in tw early 2015, um, my husband had just died, and I frankly was just keeping my head down and trying to get through the days. And a friend of mine saw the ad in the Calgary Herald, and she browbeat me into applying, to be frank. Uh, I didn't think there was any chance that all three parties would agree to appoint me as commissioner, among other things. I 
uh, was for a long period of time president of the Wind Energy Cooperative uh, Windshare. I was on the board of SolarShare, and the Conservative Party had been vociferous in its opposition to, for example, wind energy. So I really didn't think that I was possibly a plausible candidate. But anyway, mm -hmm. she persuaded me to apply, and I was, uh, frankly, really pleased and surprised to find out how much support I had from many different sectors, industries and community groups and uh, professional groups and so on. So got through the first interview and then they, um, then they kept us hanging for months. <laughs> the MPPs had other things to do and so literally it was three months before they came back for a second interview. And, you know, that's almost impossible. Do you take on new clients or not? Mm -hmm. I had a, an employee on probation. Did I give her a permanent position or not? Anyway, it was very difficult. Um, and then everything was hurry up again. They called me on short notice. Could I immediately come down for a second interview? Um, and then on Friday afternoon of September the 11th, I was on a conference call with a major client, seven other parties trying to deal with an important matter. The legislature called that they had to speak to me right that second, like in the middle of that call, and they gave me 30 seconds to decide on a start date oh, and had my appointment passed by the legislature on the Monday, which was Rosh Hashanah, so I couldn't go. So, you know, it was, <laughs> it was not good HR, I can tell you that. But that sounds like a lot of how government uh, HR processes work. <laughs> It sure is. Um, anyway, so so that was a bit of a schmozzle, and then I had two months to take apart everything I built for 40 years. As commissioner, mm -hmm. I couldn't have any other um, commitments, entanglements, obligations, contracts. I couldn't. I had to get off all my boards. I had to fire all my clients. I had to get rid of, rid of my staff and my files, um, my honorary positions, the editorships. I mean, I, I had to take all of those apart in two months, at the same wow. time as learning, ramping up to the commissioner position. Um, and then I started with a bang, because my first day as commissioner was at the Paris Climate Conference. Uh, talk about drinking from a fire hose. <laughs> so, you know, I, I have to, well, first I have to say, uh, it's incredible that, uh, I mean, it's a huge decision for one. So here you are, offered the position really at, at, the, um, at the last minute, even after waiting for months. And to dismantle your literally your entire career, uh, that speaks to a lot of commitment and a lot of you know motivation to 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 move into this new role. So the fire hose of the Paris Climate Summit. Talk about that. That sounds like quite a way to land. Well, it absolutely was. I, I mean, how can I describe what it was like? There were twenty five thousand formal delegates from the countries of the world and at least 10,000 other people who were there from civil society, from industry groups and so on, who were in the, the outer zone. Uh, and of course, there was constant threat of, of terrorism. Um, Paris had had recent terrorism. Um, in, and so the city was locked down and People from everywhere were coming together to learn from each other and to try to negotiate for some kind of agreement 
At that point, there had been failure after failure in the international negotiations, mm-hmm. um, including Copenhagen most recently. And so the, the fear was enormous that we would really blow this chance as well. And it was extraordinary um, that the Paris Agreement was able to be reached. It was an unbelievable negotiation and diplomatic triumph that that was done. Huge credit to a lot of countries, including, well, France for sure as the leader, but Canada also played an important role. And in the meantime, so there's this whole track of the negotiations, which is much worse than watching paint dry, I can assure you. Um, But at the same time, the best people in the world are competing to teach what they know in room after room and hall after hall. You literally run from one end of a giant convention center to the other to try to get to the next session to Uh learn the latest and greatest from the most knowledgeable people, the most knowledgeable scientists, the leading economists, the best uh, agronomists, the First Nations representatives. Um, It is very, very hard just to stay focused, um, get Mm -hmm. enough sleep, um, realize what you're, what you're hearing, but there was one moment that really transfixed me. So I was in a, a session where people who study ice were talking okay. about ice, permafrost, everything frozen, what they call the cryosphere. And they were, there were maybe a couple hundred people attending, listening in the room. And what the, the scientists explained with two critical things. First of all, the enormous amount of carbon that is now being released from permafrost as it starts to melt, carbon that has accumulated in permafrost for tens or hundreds of thousands of years, which is now becoming a source of carbon instead of a, of a, of a sink, and that none of it was in the computer models that were being used to predict the policy options of the world. Yeah, wow. So all of a sudden it's like an input that just adds to the problem. Exactly. So in other words, whatever amount of travel we thought we were in, it's enormously more. That will show up um, in the next report. So the way the the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change works is they do these massive assessment reports where they bring together the work of thousands of scientists from all over the world in a, uh, you know, it takes many years to put it all together. So we'll get the next report in 2022, and it's going to be grim. But just the fact that the permafrost numbers had been excluded from the previous report because they had not yet been acceptably proved at the data quality cutoff told me that everything I had assumed about how much time we had was wrong. Wow. And this is and this was sort of an aha moment where you're just thinking, what the heck is going on now? Well, the whole room went silent, right? There were hundreds of scientists in that room and policymakers and senior people from around the world. And everyone just held their breath. So with that kind of access to to you know latest information and and intelligent thinking and and just exploring this whole issue i mean it sounds mind-boggling for one to be in that kind of a space 
and and how how do you find distilling that information and and communicating it to the general public and then not having it get distorted or refuted or 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 you know somehow twisted to dilute the realities that are you know that you're seeing at the source of these you know incredibly knowledgeable forums well you're absolutely right uh the question of how to communicate what i learned was a big challenge uh i came into mm-hmm. the environmental commissioner's office after the previous commissioner had been there for 15 years mm-hmm. uh and he was not a climate advocate okay. so uh you know if you think about any kind of change management process when there is a new boss of an organization there is a process of adjustment especially when the organization's view of itself and the new boss's view are not the same so there was there was a significant challenge the first 6 months i think um mm-hmm. while we we learned to adjust to each other they i there were some major changes i wanted to make to the organization um so in particular was about communication the mandate of the office was to report to the legislature on energy on environment and on climate and we had to do at least one report each year on each of those topics um and the approach of the office and had been very much a backwards focused process. So they would wait till the government was completely finished with a topic and then report about it. Um and it takes about a year to do a report. So by the time the report was issued, you could guarantee that the issue was a year or two stale. A very safe approach, I think. Well, um it minimized the opportunity to have any impact on what was happening. Yeah, it's a politically safe path, isn't it? Well, it's it's a, it was a particularly view of accountability, right? It was an mm-hmm. understanding of accountability that you wait till the thing is finished and then critique it. Mm-hmm. I didn't find that useful. I took the job explicitly to make it matter and waiting till everything is over and then carping about it doesn't matter much. So the the most um the biggest thing that I did with the office was to change what we were trying to do from that to looking at first of all the importance of issues well that's easy mm-hmm. there's thousands of important environmental energy and and climate issues um our resources whether we had the people the time the data that we needed to be able to do a really good job analyzing a particular um question mm-hmm. and the opportunity for that to matter and with that prism we chose very different topics we then mm-hmm. also had to change how we presented what we found so to give you a sense the last energy report before i got there the all these reports were technically excellent but they were impenetrable so the executive summary of the last energy report before i got there was 11 pages of tombstone just text no graphics no photos no infographics just text difficult to communicate isn't it well if there were 100 people in the province who read that i would be surprised yeah, yeah. so 
my that wasn't my understanding of what the job was for. My understanding was that yes, of course, we were there primarily, or at least initially, to serve the MPPs. But I can be quite sure the MPPs weren't going to read eleven pages of tombstone on the fine details of of energy policy either. So making the information accessible to a wide variety of audiences some of whom are visual learners, some of whom are text learners, many of whom have got very limited time, was really important. And that was, again, something where I learned a lot. I paid a lot of attention at the Paris Climate Conference. Again, we had some of the best people in the world from all the countries in the world. And one mm -hmm. of my best ideas I got from the city of Tokyo. Um, mm -hmm. They had a um, basically a single fold-out sheet, uh, laminated. Well, not laminated, but magazine quality. Okay. Okay. on which they had really good graphics getting across their key points on uh, the climate progress that Tokyo was doing. And I, th I just thought it was brilliant. You could It was a, just a single page, so it wasn't scary. Um, you open it up. If you want more detail, you could open it further, so it opened two folds. So you got mm -hmm. basically eight sides of a page, um, seven really, because one is the cover, and as long as it's attractive and clear and well-designed, you can get a lot of the bottom lines across in that. And for most people, that was lots. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. For anybody who wanted more, we had the full report. And of course, we had the chapters color-coded. Um, for people who preferred to listen rather than read, we did a, uh, this was again novel. I, I started doing a webinar for each report. For people who were really geeks and needed to have the very fine detail background, we had technical appendices that we only put online. We didn't print those. Um, they'd been printing all of those in the past, so there was a huge amount of printing costs that we didn't need to incur. And a minor environmental impact, too? Reduced the environmental impact, but um, the main thing was we were doing all this research at public expense and for public benefit. And if we mm -hmm. couldn't get it across to people in a way that was accessible to them, it wasn't doing any good. The other part of that was that the, the, the habit of the office had been to put this enormous amount of years' effort into writing the report and then mail it out to people who'd asked for it and then stop. Well, that's not very effective. Um, and so I spent a huge amount of time on the road. I think in 2017, I did 125 talks all over Ontario. That must have been so satisfying as far as an engagement process. Well, it's exhausting for sure. Um, <laughs> Ontario is really, really big. But it was tremendously good for me in I learned an enormous amount. Uh, there's nothing like, you know, standing on the, in the council chamber in Red Lake um, mm -hmm. and listening to the mayor talk about the specific challenges that they have or being in an absolute whiteout snowstorm at a First Nations reserve on Manitoulin in the middle of January. Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, the, the opportunities that I had to hear people's concerns and to hear the questions that they had. Um, about the topics we were interested in and, and which topics we were missing. 
So that was very, very helpful. And it made a huge difference. When I was appointed, most people in the province didn't know we had an Environmental Bill of Rights, didn't know we had an Environmental Commissioner, and there'd been an Environmental Commissioner at that point for nearly 25 years. When the Ford government passed uh, special legislation to break my contract and abolish my office, most Mm -hmm. people in the province who were surveyed recognized that they would be worse off without our office. And that was a big change in three and a half years. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I read the last report that was published by your office and was very impressed with the with the content and also the readability. You know, I mean, coming from an engineering and municipal and environmental background, you know, it was very easy to digest and, and some very good messages that came through. Um, so I can appreciate the value. And it, it's interesting to wonder, too, how... You know, as much as the community, the province recognized the value, how much reach do you think there was in the general population? And because this is really a big part of what I'm trying to do with this podcast is really reach everybody. And how how would how was your sense of that traveling around and having those conversations? Did you feel there was a lot of engagement or what was your sense? A lot is an imprecise term. Mm -hmm. I, I can tell you that. The rooms were generally pretty full all across Ontario. Mm-hmm. Um, rooms of various different sizes. Um, many of the of the events sold out. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the webinars um, we regularly had more than a hundred people su- or two hundred people subscribe to the webinar, and then many others listen afterwards. Mm-hmm. So I I I know that I directly communicated with thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of people. Mm -hmm. Is that a lot in a province of nearly 14 million? Well, um, I'm not sure. We we know from social science that if roughly 3.5% of the population get engaged in a topic, that's usually enough to change policy. Mm -hmm. And so we have to think about, well, How much knock-on did that have? And I know it had some knock-on. I've had a number of people say to me, you know, I've taught this to my class now because I heard you, or I raised this in my church now because you challenged us to do that, or I've, um, you know, brought it up with my my group of friends and we're now doing something. And so I know that there is a lot more knock-on than I know of, but I don't Mm -hmm. have the stats. So, Diane... If I was to ask you, with the experience that you had in that role as the environmental commissioner, what would be the most rewarding moment or uh, that moment of experience where you kind of went, wow, that was all worth it? Well, it's really exciting to deliver a report. I mean, in a way, that was the culmination of my job. I delivered 17 reports in those three and a half years. And that meant, um, aside from the truly ferocious amount of work to to write these reports, to design them, to proofread them in both official languages, um, and there were there sure were some funny errors in translation that, that we had to catch. Um, and then one day you get an actual printed report and then, you know, within a couple of days 
You walk over to the legislative building and go into the media studio and stand in front of the cameras and and deliver it. Uh, that's that's pretty exciting. Excellent. That's excellent. Yeah. And you know what? And it is often these things that we do, these accomplishments, these the, that sense of of achieving something that really drive us in all of our careers. And I'm so happy to hear that, you know, that you did get a lot of satisfaction, not just professionally, but personally in that role. I have a question with regards to a recent report in the Globe and Mail about the Royal Ontario Museum hiring a new curator of climate change. And I understand that you had a significant role in that project. Can you speak about that? Oh, thank you for asking about that, Ilmer. I'm really proud of it. Uh, it's been about a year's work. Um, I had the great good fortune of being hired to assist the donor, Alan Schiff, um, who has, out of his own pocket, contributed $1.5 million to endow this curator. Mm-hmm. But the... It's very exciting to see the Royal Ontario Museum get engaged and how energized their their staff are to have this opportunity. So uh, the Royal Ontario Museum, you know, it's in a lot of ways the leading cultural institution in Ontario. And they have, uh, by law, they have two very different silos. They have their, their the natural world, natural history, plants, animals, rocks, and so on. And then they have, in a completely different silo, human art, history, culture. The overriding factor about the climate crisis is it affects both of those. And that's challenging from an institutional point of view. How, how do those silos effectively work together to get across a story that threatens to overturn both of them, but for which neither of them is set up? Um, and 14 years ago, when Kate Farewell had an exhibit of some climate art at the Royal Ontario Museum, there, there was a lot of resistance. There was a lot of pushback. So really exciting to see that that's behind us. I, I think that, I mean, even in the five years I've been working on climate, I have observed the transformation in public understanding that whereas most people thought of climate as climate change as being about polar bears, something's going to happen to other people later. More and more people, a lot of people now recognize that no climate change is happening to us now. Climate change is already burning California and flooding Bangladesh and Muskoka and, and many other places and creating ferocious summer heat and damaging winds and increasing insurance costs and changing lives all around the world. And that if we don't get together and do something about it, we're in really deep trouble. Uh, the Special Rapporteur to the United Nations Human Rights Council summarized it more clearly than anybody else I've seen so far. He said, look, we're now in a situation where, this was a year ago already, that this century, which means within the lifetime of today's children, mm-hmm. the best case we can hope for is widespread death and suffering. Wow. And the worst case during the lifetime of today's children is humanity on the brink of extinction. There are no bigger stakes. So to see the Royal Ontario Museum finally be willing to step forward and play a role in this and to see the excitement of the curators, 
So you, in the New York um, Globe and Mail article, you will see that 14 of the curators picked artifacts from their collection to tell part of the climate story. Art, history, religion, rocks, um, the extinction of the mammoths, the small birds whose future is now in doubt, and used each of those as a way to start a conversation. We need to do so much more of that. So yes, I'm tremendously proud of this. I'm delighted to see the job search is now underway. There's going to be the first shift curator of climate change at the Royal Ontario Museum, I hope sometime early next year. In the meantime, uh, watch for climate-related programming by the Royal Ontario Museum. And if you're a member of the museum, and I hope you are, uh, write in and tell them that this matters to you. That can be really useful. And is this role, are there other museums around the world that have have um, pursued this role? Is, it, is this, are we the first? Is the ROM the first? Well, there are some related positions in a few museums. Um, the Australian Museum in Sydney, um, the Natural History Museum um, in the U.S. There's a few that have somewhat related positions that are dealing with climate, but nothing like this where with the specific mandate to unite both human history and natural history with a focus on motivating people to take action to preserve the natural systems on which our lives depend, to the best of my knowledge, this is new. There, there are other museums struggling with this issue. How are we going to deal with climate change? I think that museum directors, just like most other educated people around the world, if they pay attention know that we're in deep trouble. And most people that I find want to be able to do something. Many feel helpless. Many mm -hmm. feel alone. Most people think nobody else is doing anything because we don't talk about it enough. Mm -hmm. But lots of people want to do something, want to find a, a, a way that they can be part of preserving the world, if only for their own children. And you know what, and that's wonderful because I think you're you're absolutely right in that notion of paralyzing or being paralyzed by fear and you know, and it's almost like burying your head in the sand and hoping somebody else will take care of the problem around us. And and really these conversations, this conversation you and I are having is really about, you know, advancing awareness and creating more knowledge and understanding around what's happening with us. Uh, with that with that thought in mind. As it is with every effort to change behavior and influence society, change is best targeted at the youth. They're the ones that are learning, open, and willing to adopt alternative behaviors for their future. What has your experience been with youth engagement, and what do you see going forward? Well, first I'm going to challenge that assertion, Ilmar. Okay. I think that the first focus on climate has to be to the baby boomers, people mm. like you and me. The doubling of climate pollution has occurred on our watch during our working lifetimes after the science was known. The United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the international treaty, which, in which all the countries of the world agreed that we would work together to keep global heating below two degrees, that was signed based on the science that was established by the 1980s. And since that time... Some accountability there, isn't there? There is. This has happened on our watch. The enormous buildup of heat in the world, particularly in the oceans, this has all happened during 
our lifetimes. This has happened because of the fossil fuel use that we in our generation have allowed to soar. So we're the ones who owe it to the young people. We made this mess and yes. we owe it to them to be standing up to be fixing it. And in many cases, older people have more money than younger people. And money really counts. Bill McKibben wrote a wonderful article in the, New in the New Yorker last September that money is the oxygen that fuels the fire of global warming. And he's absolutely right. And so any of us who contribute to a pension, receive a pension, we should be pushing our pension plans. The Canada Pension Plan, for example, they have uh, their biannual meeting uh, on, I think, the 8th of October. And it's the dirtiest pension, major pension plan in Canada, as far as we know. They've got an enormous amount of money propping up fossil fuels, building in the destruction of the world. Whereas um, the KESS has substantially dropped. It's, um, it, the, the KESS is about a third of the carbon footprint per, per million dollars that the CPP um, teaches pension plan is less than half. So there's, CPP absolutely has alternatives. They could be making the world a better place instead of continuing to destroy it, and they're not. So those of us who are in a position to speak up about that, we, we owe it, and we have the ability to do so, and, and some of us have time. Well, and, you know, and I, I totally agree with you. I think at the end of the day, you know, the generations that have created a lot of this current state are are clearly required to step up or at least acknowledge their, you know, their contribution, their blind faith in what then would have been, you know, society as normal functioning society. Um, so, yeah, definitely. Do you feel that that energy is is there, that it's coming? Um, is What's driving that energy to bring that accountability forward? Well, some of it is the youth. Um, there is no question that the climate strikes led by youth that we saw, you know, 500,000 people in the streets of Montreal last September. Mm -hmm. um, that has helped to call adults to account. There's really good research that even the most right-wing men can be changed by their daughters. <laughs> um, we see the big money managers, uh, Larry Fink, a manager of $7 trillion, biggest asset manager in the world, in his annual letter to CEOs in January, he called out the youth climate action and the climate strikes as changing his mind as changing wow. the the rationale, the importance of climate change in investment decisions. Um, and he pointed out that because the financial markets price risk ahead, money will move faster than the climate is, and the climate is moving really fast. So that was, um, you know, we really do see that youth think nobody's paying attention, but they are. It's very disappointing that COVID makes it so hard for people to be in the streets now because that does change public opinion and therefore mm -hmm. political action. Um, one of the things that I did last year was organize and host a climate action summit for youth. I, I did that in cooperation with Erwin um, Elman, who was the children's advocate fired the same day as me. Um, and also with some of the leaders, the youth leaders for Fridays for Future, uh, like Ali Rougeau. And 
we found that young people are terrified and with absolutely good reason. Yeah. And they they're prepared to do what they can, but they 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 turn back to the grown-ups and say, "Well, where are you? What are you doing? What are you doing about this situation? You created it. Um, many of you voted for governments that are retrograde. You know, the conservative government in Ontario tore up our climate law, canceled mm-hmm. 752 clean energy projects, repealed the Green Energy Act. Um, it has gone absolutely in reverse on almost every part of our climate environmental program, canceled funding for the Clean Water Act. Uh, well, people who voted for them have some accountability for that. Are they raising that with their MPPs? Are they making clear that their future votes are going to be affected by people who defend the natural systems on which our lives depend? Uh, are they raising it with their municipal governments? Mm-hmm. People, Older people vote more than younger people and therefore bear Again, a larger proportional responsibility for the government decisions that are driving us into the ground. And that actually will lead me into my next question for you when we start looking at some government accountability, because what is government but the people? You know, I'd like to hear from you on your views of that environmental accountability through the various levels of government. And if we start with the municipal sector, even just here in Ontario, uh, what's some observations and maybe some suggestions or some guidance that you can provide to the leadership, the the politicians that are at that municipal level? Well, one of the big lessons that we've learned this year in the COVID time is that we also need to pay attention to inequality um, and how badly divided our society is, how unequal, uh, and that erodes social trust and social cohesion, which we are going to need to both make the green transition and to withstand the hammer blows that the climate crisis is bringing us. One of the big questions for municipal governments, I mean, there's, 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 there's a whole group. They should be figuring out their carbon footprint. They should have a carbon budget. But they also need to think about who is not being heard. Who's not at the table? Uh, I had a conversation on transportation, mobility planning, with a municipality this week. And traditionally, they have thought about transportation just the same way the provincial government used to call the Department of Highways, right? Yeah. That... What they thought their job was, was to build big roads that people could drive on. Mm -hmm. Well, that is a very narrow and incomplete view of what the job is. And it leads to lots of roads which create enormous human health and social and environmental costs while ignoring pretty much everything else. So thinking about... Uh, th- there's been uh, some good analysis that when you when you walk from place to place, the cost is all paid by the, by the person who's walking. Um, when you bike from place to place, the cost is all paid by uh, the people who are biking. Almost all. When you drive from place to place, more than ninety percent of the cost is borne by everybody else. Wow. And so thinking about how do we how do we redesign 
our societies to give a good life to everyone, which includes air quality. And fossil fuel vehicles are one of the big polluters of air quality that really damage human health, especially for the more vulnerable. We have to think about a, a green transition that makes a better life for everyone. And that part of that is get, allowing those who have traditionally been unheard a way to have a voice. Um, municipal governments have got a number of ways of doing this. Dave Meslin's book is really good at thinking about how do you make government more accessible to people? Because it's really not true to say government is the people. Government is the expression of the power of a pretty small subset of the people most of the time. This is true. Yes, this is true. <laughs> and if you even think about these elaborate public consultation programs, well, who is it that gets to go? First of all, who finds out about it? Secondly, who gets to go um, and be heard? Well, it tends not to be people with children because they've got to be home with the kids. It tends not to be um, people working three part-time jobs because they're probably working during that time. Um, right. And you have also a... It, it's really impenetrable to find out when municipal council is discussing an issue that you might be interested in unless you own property and you get notified about something re relevant to your property. So we tend to hear a lot from property owners and drivers and not nearly so much from renters and walkers. Yeah, and that, again, yeah. drives bad decisions. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting, too, with, like with, with, uh, with my career in municipal sector, roles and you know being part of that council forum it's amazing how few actually are connected engaged and interested i mean unless unless there is a crisis in the community most people are happy to come home from work have the water run have the lights on and run the kids to soccer right i mean it's it's really quite comfortable we've created a really comfortable society for local communities Yes, for some people, mm -hmm. yeah, not everybody. What I hear often, very often from community groups is, how do we get involved in time to prevent these terrible decisions? Mm -hmm. So I talk to them about policy windows. You have to know when an issue is open for, for input. Um, and you have to get in there early to have much chance. Well, how would we know about that, they say. Fair point, because usually they don't. Right. And then if you think about council meetings, they're set up assuming that people have got hours and hours um, and can just come and sit through the whole council meeting as if they had nothing else to do. Well, that's just not realistic. And so if we, if, if councils took seriously that people are really busy and want to have input but can't necessarily um, but have to find a way to do it that is convenient for people to comment and that is effective and convenient for people of not just different language backgrounds but different economic positions so not everybody's going to have high-speed internet at home even right. if they're allowed to to log in from home so i've got a meeting coming up um, in Toronto, where the the expectation is that anybody who wants to be heard 
First of all, we'll be on the website within minutes of the window for registration opening, and they're not going to tell us much in advance when the window is. And then on the day of, you have to be logged in at 9.15 in the morning and then sit there continuously for whatever number of hours until they get to you. Totally disrespectful. Um, Completely impossible for most people with other commitments. And this is, you know, and this is a really interesting aspect of that municipal engagement, you know, public outreach. And yeah, there are definitely challenges in that forum. I I, I do want to ask one question with regards to our neighbors to the south. The U.S. has, uh, you know, 10 times our population, very influential country globally, and never mind North America. Um, just a very, very pointed position on where the U.S. is these days. Michael Mann tweeted this week that if Trump is reelected in the United States, it's all over. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly Trump has done incalculable damage to global cooperation, to public trust, to environmental protection, to tolerance for destructive behavior, um, to tolerance for lies, to tolerance for abuse, um, to raising the risk that that the United States is going now the way Germany did in 1933. Mm -hmm. It's utterly terrifying and it reminds me constantly of the decline and fall of the roman empire wow very uh, very descriptive response thank you for that diane (laughs) um maybe on a positive note i'd like to ask you launched a podcast earlier this year in march and it's a podcast around um climate and environmental change i mean you've really you've really taken a different view and you've tried to really motivate a, a different audience well an audience very much in line with your priorities but something that's going to expand that that interest tell me about your your podcast what it's what it's focusing on and how your experience is with that journey well thank you for asking about it i as you can tell spend most of my time wallowing in bad news because <laughs> the facts are really grim mm-hmm. most of the facts in most of the world And when I started talking about climate five years ago, that's what people most needed to hear. They needed to be shocked into taking it seriously because, I mean, if I didn't know how serious it was, then I could be pretty sure not many people did. Right. That's not what I find most people need now. Lots of people are already scared out of their mind. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... There, there is a real danger of people going from indifference to despair with nothing in between. And neither of them leads to action. Mm-hmm. So I've been thinking for some time that one of the things we, that we need now is to hear stories about what's going well, to hear stories about pathways to a better future that are based on science and not simply on lies. So when COVID happened, and uh, I had a very, very busy year booked, 
continuing to travel, giving climate talks all over Ontario and other places, um, just as I did last year. And that all came to a crashing halt the middle of March. So with all my gigs cancelled, I suddenly had time to get back to this idea that I'd been thinking about um, for, for quite some time, that we need to tell these stories. We need to tell the good news stories, and particularly the green business stories. Mm. There are many, many people doing wonderful things in the public sector. And there are lots of people doing wonderful things in the nonprofit sector. But as commissioner, I had to spend a lot of time thinking about how to reach the full cross-section of Ontario, including supporters of the Conservative Party, which has a very different view from mine about practically all environmental issues. And many of those people don't see that we can make a future out of stuff that's paid for by out of taxes or donations. They view the financial basis has to come from the private sector and everything else is, is icing. Whether that's right or not is, is another story. But that's a very widespread view. And so it seemed to me that the stories that would have the best chance of being of interest, accessible, and, and influential for people all across the province of all types of political stripes would be stories about successful green business people. So that's what I set out to do, was to look for people who are making a living building the green transition in ways that reduce our carbon footprint, because that, I think, is our most urgent task. If we don't do that, nothing else is going to matter. Um, we, we can't adapt if we don't reduce our carbon pollution. That's now pretty clear. We will not be able to adapt for long. Mm -hmm. And so I am tracking down these amazing people from all across the country, um, young, old, um, all kinds of personal diversity, different kinds of businesses, and asking them to tell me their story, what they're doing, how they got there, what they're proud of, what was hardest about it, what they wish they'd known when they were 18, and whether they have hope. And so far, they all say they have hope, and I'm, I'm, I'm hanging on to some of that because I could sure use some. <laughs> well, let me ask now. You're you're um, well into the episode number thirty three since you've started, so that's a lot of coverage of your journey in these interviews. And and I agree with you. I can tell you, my conversations with people like yourself are incredibly inspiring for me. So of all these, and I hate to tell you to pick one, but maybe just share one story or one. Uh, experience that really, really gives you some hope or some some confidence that we can get on the right path? Well, first of all, I should say the name of the podcast is Green Economy Hero. So please go check it out. Um, mm -hmm. There's a page on my website, saxfacts.com for the podcast. You can also find it anywhere you get your podcast. Just look for Green Economy Heroes. Well, it's one story. Well, here's one that really surprised me that I had... Um, I had no idea. Do you know that more than half the geothermal installers in Manitoba are indigenous people that used to have big barriers to employment? Wow, no, I did not know that. So 
there's a group called Aki Energy, A-K-I Energy, and I uh, I interviewed Sean Loney. Uh, episode episode was up at the end of August, and what they recognized was they couldn't deal with all the problems they had on these reserves with the almost complete unemployment rate, people who didn't finish high school, people with criminal records, um, terrible housing, very high energy costs, the diesel generators going all the time, making the air dirty and the noise unbearable. They just weren't getting any help from government that allowed them to get their arms around these issues. But there were enormous opportunities to make things better. And so they persuaded some foundations to put up some upfront cash. And this is what they did. Um, They could have trained geothermal installers from the South in a day, get them to pass their test, and then they put in geothermal with a government grant, and then the people leave and nobody knows how to support it, and after a while it breaks down, right? We've seen this over and over again on reserves. So instead what they did is they hired people from that community, people who'd had big barriers for employment, and instead of expecting them to learn and pass the test in a day, they gave them two weeks of classroom teaching and then a whole summer of supervised practical experience before they took the test. Nice. That's that's full-on engagement. That's full engagement. And they paid them the whole time. And in the meantime, they learned the skills to be, and became certified geothermal installers. And they were able to become heroes in their community instead of bums because mm-hmm. they're earning a living, they're supporting their family, and they're taking those broken down leaky, miserably cold buildings and making them warm, comfortable, draft-free, cheap to heat um, in ways that can be replicated over and over again around the province. So they've done, and they get paid back for all of this, partly from the energy savings, but the brilliant thing was they recognized that there would also be big social service savings, taking people off welfare and away from the emergency services. So Sean told me in Winnipeg, 43% of property taxes go for frontline services, police, fire, ambulance, paramedics, and so on. And that 80% of the calls that those people were dispatched on were not house fires or crimes. They were addictions, uh, interpersonal problems, things that were basically the problems of of poverty and dislocation. And that they could dramatically reduce those costs, the frontline costs to the municipality, by giving people a career that would earn them a living and give them status in their communities and make their communities better. And that's what this does. And so the foundations get paid back, partly out of the energy savings, but largely out of the social service savings of having these people be productive members of the community instead of the million-dollar man on the constant cycle of needing emergency services. You know, and Diane, this one I will reshare and propagate this story for you because that is incredible. And I do want to encourage the listeners of this show. Again, it's Green Economy Heroes 
Climate Podcast, and that's Diane's website at saxfacts.com. Um, Aki Energy is just one of 30 great stories. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm looking at the titles, and I've listened to a number of them, and and this is, I mean, this is the beauty and what's incredible. And you, you know, your, your launch of March, mine was uh, several months later. It took me a little longer to kind of realize that I could actually contribute in this way. And it's incredibly rewarding to take the time that we've had with COVID and actually spit out something actually productive and contributory. So, so kudos to you on your journey. And, you know, you, you are definitely well on your way to creating a, a, a plethora of knowledge and information and interesting stories. So thank you for that. Uh, one last question for you as we, as we come close to the end of our interview. And this is a question I ask every, uh, every participant. And it's really what call to action do you want to bring forward? And I want to ask it to you in three parts. Call to action to our youth, our political representatives, and our community as a whole. In essence, it's the same thing. We have to, each of us, reduce our own carbon footprints. We are, as Canadians, some of the largest climate polluters in the world. Of the nearly 200 countries in the world, we're in the top 10 climate polluters. And that's with only 34 million people. So we need to reduce our own footprints. And fortunately, there's lots of opportunities to do that. Um, and if anybody wants information about that, um, my very last report was on personal carbon footprints, but the way we drive, the way we heat our homes, flying, which we don't do as much now, and eating meat, that those four, just those four, account for half the carbon footprint of the average Ontarian. And there's room to make all of those better. The second thing is we have to make our money count. As I indicated earlier, pension funds, banks, they throw around enormous sums of capital and they need to refocus that money away from fossil fuels and into what will give us a future, which is also going to be a better way for them to make money. As we can see, investing in fossil fuels has been a bad idea for quite a long time already. So if you've got a pension plan, you contribute into it, or you're receiving a pension, you need to be speaking up to your pension plan. If you've got a bank account with one of our big five banks, which are really bad fossil fuel providers, have you raised it with your bank or consider firing your bank and go somewhere like Desjardins. But the main thing is we need political change. So we each have to speak up about climate. We have to make it matter. We have to vote on it. Because really, if we get this wrong, nothing else is going to matter. Mm, yeah. And most people still think that no one else is doing something. The most important thing you can do is talk about climate, make it a political issue, write to your newspaper, talk to your neighbors, put up a sign, join a group. Don't get tired of talking about it because climate change is not getting tired of us. Thank you. Thank you for those very, very specific calls to action. And Diane, any last words? It's going to be hard, but it's going to be worth it. Thank you. And I do want to, I just do want to share too. Again, you know, you have a, a whole bunch of information, both as your role as the environmental commissioner with the reports that were published through your office and your SACS FACS website and the podcast. And I do want to encourage everyone to take an opportunity to see what you have contributed in this, in this particular fight. Dan, I want to thank you so much for participating and I really have enjoyed this interview. Thank you for having me, Elmar. Have a great weekend.